0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. President Donald Trump put immigration at the heart of his State of the Union last night. He started his pitch for reform by saying he wanted to protect American citizens.
1: My duty and the sacred duty of every elected official in this chamber is to defend Americans, to protect their safety, their families, their communities, and their right to the American dream. Because
0: Americans are dreamers, too. And he challenged Congress to go along with his plan.
1: For over 30 years, Washington has tried and failed to solve this problem. This Congress can be the one that finally makes it happen.
0: Well, with another deadline for congressional action looming, we're asking, what does Colorado need from immigration reform answers today from agriculture higher education and business don ament is a former state agriculture commissioner his family has farmed in northeast colorado for more than a century hi don good morning kay norton is president of the university of northern colorado in Greeley. kay welcome to the show
2: Thank you, Ryan.
0: And Jeff Waston is president of the Colorado Business Roundtable, which advocates for pro-business legislation. It, too, has taken uh, stances and held forums on immigration with its members. Welcome to the program. Great.
3: Thank you, Ryan. It's great to be here.
0: I want to start with a lightning round. So quickly answer for me what single change to immigration policy would help the people you work with every day in Colorado, Uh, whether or not that change is part of President Trump's current plan. So Kay at uh, UNC, let's start with you.
2: Well, the single uh, biggest thing that uh, we would hope would come from our federal government is uh, some kind of clarity and simplification of our our immigration laws, which were, are incredibly complex and most specifically from our point of view protection of our students who um, are not documented but were uh, really have dreamer status, uh, who were brought here to this country um, by, by others and um, are uh, a great place for us to invest in the future of our nation.
0: A great place to invest. Say just a bit more about that.
2: Well, we have invested as um, as uh, citizens in the education of these young people uh through the K through 12 system. And, uh, to then, uh, uh, treat them as if we no longer want them to be, be a part of our society and, and our economy is uh, really to throw to waste that, uh, that investment in these young people who, who really represent the American dream in many ways.
0: You are talking in part about young people that are protected currently by DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And the president's plan would eventually lay out a a path for citizenship uh, for them uh, with a lot of other provisos, including border security, for instance, and changes to visas. And what the president calls chain migration, uh, family reunification. Uh, okay, so Jeff Wazden of the Colorado Business Roundtable, from the standpoint of Colorado's industries, what's the biggest single change you'd like to see in immigration?
3: I think the the biggest issue that needs to be addressed is the broken legal immigration. Uh, right now, uh, we spend a lot of time discussing the illegal immigrants that are here. Uh, certainly, our dreamers are important. There's a moral and compassionate uh Way and a path forward, I think, to address. The, you know, these children that were brought here through no fault of their own that have contributed so significantly to our societies, to our communities that bring that entrepreneurial spirit. But on this legal front. The legal front, when you start looking, Ryan, right at that, it's, it's a way and a path forward to help keep America secure, to provide reforms to our visa cap systems, to get the right workforce, to the right industries and sectors that are so needed to create the certainty and predictability and the economic impacts and imperatives that are so needed. Dreamers, DACA students, the illegal immigrants um, contribute. they help grow our tax base, they help move our economy forward. They are so critical to building that middle class uh, value systems that are here and contribute not only those dollars but the disposable income beyond that. Can you
0: give me an example of an industry uh, specifically in Colorado that would like to see those kinds of changes to the legal immigration? System.
3: If you look at the H-1B visas, for example, on the high-tech scale, we're certainly entering into the fourth industrial revolution, AI, robotics, automation. Uh, AI, artificial and, intelligence. When you start to look at the changes and the needs and the demands upon uh, those particular industry sectors, and uh, right now, higher ed and our ability to turn out that workforce This is a global economy, and we rely upon a lot of talent, and a lot of that talent is driven by and hired. It's a competition for American corporate companies for that talent. Those immigrants provide a lot of opportunities and path forward. And to Kay's point, the ability to keep those students that that Kay and other um, incredible institutions here in the state of Colorado are training, we need to fix that. They can stay here and continue to contribute to our societies, the communities that brought them here and help American companies continue to move forward.
0: Don Ament, what's the priority as you see it for Colorado's farmers and ranchers?
4: Agriculture, Ryan, contributes over $41 billion of economic activity for Colorado. A major piece of that is in the beef industry and also uh, the dairy industry that comes along with that. And then I want to speak a little bit too quickly, to to the vegetable industry. Those cattle that are getting milked in a dairy are primarily milked by immigrant folks, and uh, they contribute a whole great deal to Colorado's growing the dairy industry, which is approaching now nearly a billion-dollar contribution. The cattle and the beef part of that, the pecking houses and so on that you've heard about in the past that have a many immigrants, you heard the big ruckus in Fort Morgan with Cargill when we had a Muslim problem there with immigrants. That whole business, too, is predicated upon immigrant labor. Then you know about fruits and the picking thing and the vegetables in Colorado. If we don't have those immigrants, I want to cite a case that's very close to us. We have a big uh, vegetable industry north of Denver in the Brighton area, and so on. Sicada uh, is the one that comes to me, and I just recently talked to cicadas about they aren't any. Good, they're no longer going to raise sweet corn. Uh, no longer broccoli, a lot of those vegetable crops because of the fact that uh, they can pick them, they can get them there, but nobody there to package them. So Uh,
0: this is a a farm that I will say in Brighton, just northeast of Denver, and Robert Cicada is the head of that farm. We actually reached out to him. He says that American immigration policies have made it impossible for him to get the workers he needs. And uh, as you say, he's had to make a difficult choice.
5: My whole lifespan, (laughs) we've been growing sweet corn, but we've made the tough decision not to grow sweet corn anymore, and we're actually going to have a farm equipment auction to sell off all of our sweet corn and broccoli and cabbage harvesting equipment.
0: He referenced broccoli and cabbage equipment there. He told us they stopped farming those crops a while ago, also because of the labor shortage, and Sakata figures he's one of the state's top three sweet corn growers, but now he'll grow pinto beans and winter wheat instead. Uh, I'll point out those those fruits and vegetables, I guess, Don, are some of the most labor-intensive crops, huh?
4: That's correct. Cicadas and patrocos, there's a lot of folks that mechanically have figured out how to get that crop out of the field. But right after they get the crop out of the field, it has to be packaged and, and processed and shipped and uh they've, they've told, just told me they they go down uh, to Denver and they pick up day laborers that last not even a half a day and choose not to work any longer in that type of thing. So if we rule out, if we and I, I, I agree with Jeff, uh, the legal part is what I'm worried about. The illegal part, we will continue to debate. Uh, illegal is illegal for me. But the legal part with an H-2A for agriculture where growers just say that this is not working. Uh, So that's what I'm looking for, something that works.
0: And do you see that in the Trump framework?
4: I think this is a start. You know, the problem always is, since K&I worked on a du. Strategic Issues Panel on Immigration. This is back, in, emotional... back in
0: 2009, DU assembled some big thinkers <laughs> in Colorado and said what might immigration look like, immigration reform look like and uh, boy, it's a testament to how long this issue has plagued the country, right? That was back in 2009 that you met to discuss That's
4: that. That's right, and, and, and I'm disappointed to say that after spending that much time and reviewing uh, and, and without really, without exception, people agreed that this was one of our biggest problems just uh, just frost with uh, all kinds of issues and when you start working issues through the motion it gets in the way and so all of a sudden you, you 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 got a line here between what's sound and what's emotionally and morally the issue and so i i'm telling you here 8 9 years later uh, i don't I think, and Kate can correct me, but I don't think we've enacted anything that we discussed about on that strategic issues board.
0: Which uh, had a lot to do with business and its labor needs. I think our our lightning round turned into something of a thunderstorm there. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about what Colorado needs out of immigration reform. You just heard there from Donna Ment, former state agriculture commissioner. His family's farmed in northeastern Colorado for more than a century. Also uh, with us, Kay Norton, president of the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley, and Jeff Wazden, He's president of the Colorado Business Roundtable. And uh, Kay Norton, to folks protected by DACA, uh, how many uh, students students would that include at UNC? Do you know?
2: Well, we don't have an exact number because uh, we don't ask about uh, an individual student's immigration status uh, in regard to something like DACA. What we do do is inquire whether they are qualified under Colorado law that was passed, I believe, in 2014 um, that uh, provides for in-state tuition. Uh, eligibility uh, for uh, students who have um, been in a Colorado high school for a certain number of years and have graduated and, and meet a few other criteria. So we have 74 asset students currently as of last fall here at UNC. Now,
0: that's the state Uh, law asset.
2: That's the state law about tuition, access to uh, in-state tuition rates.
0: Okay, about 70. So those are are potentially folks who are covered by DACA. That's right. What has been the... They might
2: or might not be. And Hmm. then there are others who would not be. Either they've chosen not to uh, seek DACA status, the deferred action status under the federal uh, rules, or... um, they are don't qualify for some reason, so um, we don't know how many undocumented students we have for certain. We call lump them all together. Can, can you speak just briefly?
0: Can you speak just briefly to the mood on campus among those students right now? Uh,
2: well, certainly, there's considerable anxiety as as the um, conversations and the arguments ebb and flow from almost on a daily basis. So for the last two years ago. Um, we started a, a support program for students who self-identified as being a dreamer. Uh, in some, in some way, shape, or fashion, they um, are not uh, uh, citizens and um, are concerned about um, whether they fit in to the University of Northern Colorado. Right. So we do have support programs for for uh, students uh, whom we've admitted and uh, uh, in order to address their anxieties.
0: Jeff Wosden of the Colorado Business Roundtable, you talked about the need for highly skilled labor and that some industries really are looking for for more people from abroad to fill some of those positions. Uh, So you see the the Trump outline on immigration reform uh, looking at reshaping how visas are handed out and that that should be done uh, with merit in mind. What do you think of of that proposal from a business standpoint? I think if you're
3: looking at the security of our country, a merit-based system makes sense, right? I think we can handle that through vetting, whether it's through the family migration, chain migration, uh, whether it's visa lottery, Uh, and I think that's been one of President Trump's staples uh, since day one is Let's do some vetting and ensure that the people are here here for the right reasons. I want to get to the economic imperative. I talked briefly about the moral imperative and the number. 17,300 DREAMers here. In Colorado. We stand to lose $856.9 million in annual GDP if we don't create a fix for the DACA DREAMers. If we pass something like the DREAM Act, one of the proposed legislations, it could increase our GDP by about $438 million annually. Um, over the next decade. So you
0: see uh, both an economic imperative in DACA and in the legal immigration and visa roads. Uh, Absolutely. This is something where you start looking at broadening the tax
3: base and the amount of uh, revenue that is paid by immigrants. And I think people forget that, that they are contributing each and every day to our economies and local, state, federal taxes. They're contributing to the local communities. They're providing that innovative spirit. We have 95.6% of the, the... dreamers that are currently working. That's a number far above the local statistics for native-born Americans. They
0: contribute each and every day. One thing we heard the president say in his State of the Union address, uh, really as he was beginning to talk about immigration, was that uh, immigrant labor, especially illegal immigrant labor, takes jobs away, especially from low-income citizens in the United States. Do you see that borne out Donovan in agriculture.
4: Absolutely, I uh, I uh, was uh, president of a school board out here for many years, and I've watched this go on and on and on and on. I can tell you right now, I know of undocumented people that have fake of uh, Social Security numbers that play a game, and employers get put in a real box. If you got a if you have a pretty good employee that's trying to. Trying to contribute and yet is illegal. That puts the employer also in an awkward position, in an illegal position. So I know of people out here and and, and that just are 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 working under a phony uh, uh, a phony. uh, a social security number, and it troubles me the, the the problems that causes within a community, especially more rural communities, when people know these people are illegal and they're competing against them, and and yet we still need that workforce. So, it, so this is the conundrum that I wish we well, can get to, and I think Trump is trying to get to. Well,
0: I I, I want to point to what I hear is a contradiction in what you're saying. In other words, uh, you think... That illegal immigrant labor is taking jobs from American citizens, and yet I also hear you saying that American citizens won't take those jobs. Well, that's w-
4: exactly right. W-
0: which which one is right?
4: <laughs> well, first of all, I think illegal some illegals are, are are taking those jobs, and I think we could get legals in there. If we would get the right, if we could get an H2A process or some process to make immigrants more easily, like I think back to where I'm with Jeff. I mean, if you make uh, the legal process work better, then we could maybe make some of these illegals be legal and we'd still we would still, on a more fair basis, get the workforce we need.
0: So on something like an H-2A visa, uh, that, which which touches agriculture. It's really well, I, a
3: failure of leadership is what we're dealing with. And you start looking at what went on in 2009, the Gang of Eight with Senator Bennett. Here we are today, 30-plus years of having these discussions around immigration reform. There is a path forward. Some great leadership could take care of that very
0: easily. Uh,
2: yeah, this is where we... we it, oh, go
0: ahead, Kate okay, Norton.
2: Oh, I was going to say, if, if we fix the legal immigration system, then under our legal immigration system, as complex as it is, um, employers are cannot um, undercut the wages that they would pay uh, uh, to a native-born uh, citizen. So um, if, if we fix the... Um, what it means to uh, be work eligible, eligible to work in the United States, then you won't see a depression in wages caused by people who've come over and are not authorized to work.
0: Okay, I want one more lightning round to wrap this up, <laughs> which is what is your level of optimism that this will be addressed? Uh, because as as we said a bit earlier, uh, Kay Norton uh, you have been at this for some time uh, on this issue. What, what's your yep. level of optimism? Just real briefly.
2: Uh, It's limited. I think we'll continue to see piecemeal um, uh, solutions. uh, uh, For example, the Dreamers are a very appealing, innocent group. Um, I think we may see something that protects them. Um, Some of the other uh, big picture issues, I I am uh, not optimistic that we'll see a fix.
0: All right. And do you think that that's in part because the the border wall is being used... Uh, really, in concert with the question of what happens to DACA recipients?
2: Well, I think there will ha- does have to be a balance between the security interests of of uh, the United States and 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 all Americans. Um, um, but right now, we're talking about extremes, um, and um, um, we're going to have to walk back from the idea that a wall per se is going to fix uh, these issues.
0: And that was yet hugely. Uh, emblematic throughout the the Trump campaign, and something that his base uh, clearly is fired up about. All right, Donna, very briefly. What's your level of optimism on this?
4: I'm not very optimistic. I think the dreamers might get a resolution, but I, I I'm having been a legislator for many years. I'm more concerned about the fact that this has become a political thing. The uh, 2018 elections are coming. I see. I see, given the circumstance we are today, that this is going to be uh, – uh, how do you get your leg up for the 2018 elections? And I think that's going to preclude any real real major uh, improvements in what we're trying to do here.
0: Did Jeff, lightning
3: fast – I take the opposite answer. I think there uh, is a great path forward. And I don't think perfect is going to be the enemy of good this time. I think everybody has a vested stake and that we're going to be able to see a fix. It's unfortunate that the dreamers are being held hostage uh, to get that. But I think you're going to see some security issues addressed and some fixes to the visa system
0: uh, and that we will get some resolution on this issue. Jeff Waston, president of the Colorado Business Roundtable, Kay Norton, president of the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley, and Donna Meant, he's a former Colorado Agriculture Commissioner. His family has farmed in Northeast Colorado for more than a century. I want to thank you all for being with us. And we'll be right back with how virtual reality can prepare inmates for life on the outside. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A story now about men who've been in prison since they were kids for crimes like murder. They figured if they were lucky, they'd be old by the time they got out. Well, now under a new state law, they have a second chance. And as CPR's Andrea Dukakis reports,
1: virtual reality is helping them get ready for life on the outside. Inmate Andrew Salas has had dozens of jobs in prison. He's helped teach over 300 prisoners how to play and read music. But he's never had a job interview until now. What
6: is your name? Andrew Salas.
1: Well, not exactly an interview. Salas is wearing goggles. To him, it feels like he's in a real office talking to a would-be employer who happens to have a very robotic-sounding voice.
0: Good to meet you. Good to meet you, too.
1: Solace, who's 48, is practicing his interview skills in front of eight other inmates. All they see is Salas sitting in a chair with goggles, explaining why he wants a job as a music teacher.
6: Why should we hire
5: him? I think I'd be a good man for the job. I love playing music. I love teaching music better than even playing it. There's nothing better than seeing someone that doesn't know how to play an instrument. To see the look on their face and how they feel. When they play something, they were we'll never be able to play before.
1: Salas was 17 years old when he entered prison. It was 1989. He'd been given 72 years in prison. Salas figured if he ever got out, he'd be an old man. But in 2016, changing views on juvenile crime and punishment led to a new Colorado law. It came on the heels of several Supreme Court decisions that found juvenile brains aren't fully developed and that juveniles have more capacity for change than adults. The Colorado law meant Salas and others like him could apply for early parole, but they would first have to complete a three-year program designed to prepare them for the outside world. Even things like doing their own laundry. So
4: he's picking up uh, some clothes, throwing them in a bit of dryer there. That just came out of the, the
1: instructor has handed over the goggles to Eric Davis, who's been virtually transported to a laundromat. He's using two hand controls to do a few loads of laundry. To anyone watching, it looks like he's just waving the hand controls in the air.
6: Supposing to them? Oh, Picking up my debit card, that I've never used before.
1: None of these guys has used a debit card, they've never operated a smartphone, and many have never driven a car. Nicole Troncoso, who works with the group, says every prisoner faces challenges when they're released. But she says these kids, now adults, grew up in prison. They haven't had to do things like manage a budget or cook their own meals. They've had all their decisions made for them.
2: You're told when you're going to eat, what you're going to eat every day, what you're supposed to wear, when you have to go to work. When these guys get out, they're not going to have that structure. They're going to have to have that internal structure built within them.
1: The guys say virtual reality is helping them get a taste for living in the real world. But the program isn't just about virtual reality. Troncoso says it's mostly about teaching the inmates how to deal with stress and problems they might face one day with peers, family, and co-workers. And she says this program isn't just for the inmates. It's for everyone else, too.
2: These individuals are going to get out and they're going to be our neighbors. You're going to see them in the grocery stores, walking down the street, when you're with your family, with your friends. So I want every opportunity for these guys to have a successful chance when they get out there.
1: This is the first group of inmates to go through the program. It's based at the Fremont Correctional Facility in Canyon City. Less than 100 inmates in the state are eligible to apply, and they're carefully evaluated for risk. Leroy Gardenhire, who spent 26 years in prison, says when he thinks about release, he feels like a weight's being lifted off his chest. But at the same time, he says everything about it makes him nervous. Oh, everything. Driving, interacting
2: with people, reconnecting with your family. We get visits and stuff, but you know, when you're out there on a 24-hour basis, I'm nervous about it all.
1: It's a lot to think about when you've been in prison since you were a teenager. That's why Garden Hire and the others are getting three years of practice for the world they'll face. I'm Andrea Dukakis, CPR News.
0: More than 70 million people in the Indian state of Bihar live with unreliable electricity, or none at all. Manoj Sinha knows what that's like. He grew up in that region and often had to study by candlelight. Now, the company he founded is generating power for more than 100,000 people back home using solar energy and rice waste. His company is Husk Power Systems, and Sinha recently moved its headquarters to Fort Collins. Manoj, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So you grew up in Bihar, in the northwest of India, near the border of Nepal. Uh, Paint a picture of what it's like there.
6: Uh, So it's it's not a too big a state, but we do have 110 million people, roughly one-third of the United States. So we are densely populated. Uh, interestingly, you know, like you said, 70-odd million people either do not have any electricity or some electricity. And what effect uh, does that have on their lives?
0: Did it have on your life, for that uh, matter?
6: Uh, tremendous. I was a bit fortunate. Uh, my dad used to work in a power plant, so we did have electricity connection. I see. Uh, but it was not very reliable. Uh, that's why, like you said, I did have to study at least during exam times under candlelight so I can pass the exam. Uh, but my own relatives who live in the villages, they did not have access to electricity. These are my cousins. And because of that, a lot of them will not study at night because how do you really study? Uh, and that so th- this is about
0: bettering yourself in many ways.
6: Absolutely. What we take for granted here uh, is actually a basic necessity that fuels uh, many things in life. Uh, energy is the bedrock of everything that we do. You earned
0: an engineering degree from the University of Massachusetts and then a business degree, and you landed a job at Intel, Uh, but you really wanted to help your family in India. So you and a friend built a mini-grid. Help us understand what a mini-grid is.
6: Correct. So uh, I'm trained as an electrical engineer, and uh, like I said, you know, I knew the problem in my own state for 70 million people, and... uh, I was trained as an electrical engineer, so it made sense to generate electricity in the best possible way that we could. So we started this concept of decentralized power plant and distribution network. What a mini grid really is is, in our case, we do this fifty kilowatt of power plant, which is tiny.
0: Fifty kilowatt. How many homes would that serve?
6: A lot. A uh, lot. So three hundred to four hundred in in India and okay. actually Sub Saharan Africa. Not that many, I guess. Uh, as compared to, if you compare it to the U.S., probably not more than five, six homes is what you can power.
0: I see. Many more homes because they presumably use less energy. Okay. And so the idea is to decentralize power. And uh, a big part of this production, I understand, is solar, which, of course, works when the sun is out. But when it's cloudy or dark, uh, you turn to something that there's a lot of in Bihar. Rice husks. Uh, What are rice husks? How do you use them?
6: So let me uh, give you a context. So, you know, since I worked at Intel, semiconductor was very easy for me to understand. So we started looking at solar in 2008. That's when we started the company. But it was too expensive. And then we looked at what is available locally. Uh, and Bihar produces a lot of rice. And rice husk was wasted. So we discovered you can use rice husk, which is a byproduct of milling rice crops to generate electricity using gasification. Now, are rice
0: husks, forgive my ignorance, are those husks of the individual grains or of, of a larger part of the plant?
6: Of individual grains. So when you harvest it, you have a rice grain and it is coated by rice husk, Okay. which is actually milled and, was- and thrown away. So th- what, there were just piles of this stuff sitting around? And burned or left in the field to rot, yes, all of those.
0: So there's a gasification process that you harness to make this energy. Is it clean energy?
6: Yes. So gasification system itself, uh, we are actually validated by carbon committee. So each 30 kilowatt plant that we have on gasification eliminates 215 tons of CO2 from atmosphere per year.
0: My. And uh, again, this is waste that otherwise would have gone to waste. Right. Uh, And had for many years. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And we're talking with the head of Husk Power Systems, which has recently moved its headquarters to Fort Collins and an innovation campus associated with CSU. My guest is Manoj Sinha. And so uh, how has this changed lives in India and elsewhere? Because it's not just in India,
6: as you've noted. Uh, As I noted earlier, electricity, the way we see this is, it's a tool, right? It is a tool that people use for being more productive, to generate more cash. For example, businesses are open longer, right? They are purchasing freezers so that they can keep perishable products and sell. Uh, An interesting anecdote is in a village that we installed, uh, they never had ice creams, I could not find ice cream at 120 degree Fahrenheit in that village. There is not not uh, ice cream in a very hot place, you're saying. Right. And, I, uh, and when we provided 24-7 power with this unique combination, solar, biomass, and battery, that shop owner is selling 2,000 ice creams per day in summer. And
0: what are they paying for the electricity, though?
6: Uh, they uh, typically save 25 to 30 percent from alternatives. So they used to use diesel genset or other sources of energy like kerosene.
0: So they were using diesel generators, in other words. That's expensive fuel, you're saying, compared to what you're able to offer.
6: Correct. And they would never be able to do 24-7 power and VR.
0: You have just raised $20 million from investors like Shell Oil, among others. And where would you like to take this technology?
6: So, yeah, we are absolutely excited about partnering with the likes of Shell, NG, and SWEAT Fund. And with this uh, coalition, uh, we really want to do uh, roughly 300 to 350 new mini-grid sites in India and Tanzania.
0: Tanzania is the other place where you've installed some of these.
6: That's correct. That's East Africa. Uh, why Fort Collins? Why did you move uh, to that, that CSU campus? So Fort Collins really has uh, developed an ecosystem that we need to really propel our uh, mini-grids uh, to to help electrify millions of people.
0: You're alongside other energy thinkers, in other words.
6: Uh, yes. And it's an ecosystem that comprises of Energy Institute at Fort Collins. And what we uh, have been uh, talking about is technology to psychology, right? So Technology to psychology. Right. So technology is just providing electrons using what we just discussed. Mm-hmm. But the end uh, goal is to have customers use electricity in a productive manner. And that's where behavioral economics comes so into play. Th-
0: the idea there is not just giving the end user power, but presumably working f- with them to harness that power in the smartest way possible for them. That's correct. Have you been back to Bihar since these grids have been installed?
6: And tell me what it's like, uh, if you have. Uh, well, the, the very first one that we installed back in 2008 uh, was in this village called Tamkuha. It's a Hindi word which lit- literally means it's darkness. And it is true. it was true. Huh. Uh, and uh, there was no facility hotels, right? So I actually pissed Coleman Tent uh, with my co-founders. You were camping. <laughs> we were camping. Uh, and built the first very first power plant. Uh, so yeah, I'm I, I have recently opened an office in Fort Collins, but you know I still am predominantly in India and Tanzania.
0: They're going to have to change the name of the town
6: to to light. For us, <laughs> <Perhaps>, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Manoj Sinha is founder of Husk Power Systems, which provides electricity to people who didn't have it before in both India and Tanzania. Husk recently moved its headquarters to Fort Collins. The 2017 NASCAR season could have been disastrous for Denver's Furniture Row Racing.
4: This entire season, it's been one thing after another.
0: There was illness.
4: I mentioned earlier, Barney Visser, owner of the team, a heart attack, surgery, watching from home
0: followed by more sickness.
4: Longtime girlfriend of Martin Truex Jr. has continued to battle cancer. Sherry Pollock's watching intently.
0: But the final stages of the year's last race, last November in Miami, all of that was at least momentarily set aside.
4: One lap to go. The gap still a half a second. Martin Truex Jr. Kyle Busch running one and two. Art Jr., 12 years in the Cup Series, and his roller coaster career is finally reaching the peak. Bart Truex Jr. is the
0: Boxer Energy NASCAR Cup Series champion. A team that used to draw Snickers in the racing community had the last laugh. Furniture Row, the only NASCAR team based outside the Carolinas, won the championship. And in less than three weeks, they'll defend their title in a new season, starting at the Daytona 500. Joe Garoni is president of Furniture Row Racing. He's a Denver native as well. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. You aren't the only Denverite involved with Furniture Row. Uh, We just heard there about uh, Barney Visser, the team's owner, who'd had a heart attack shortly before Homestead, that race. He lives here. I guess, first off, how's his recuperation going? Oh he's doing great. I literally just got off the phone with him, and um think
5: he's just really looking forward to getting uh to the racetrack I get to uh to daytona.
0: The clip also mentioned sherry Pollux, the girlfriend of your driver martin Truex jr. How is she uh she's doing great from uh from everything that
5: i I know I haven't talked to her in uh uh probably three weeks, but uh obviously spent a lot of time with her at the award ceremonies and um, I've been in touch with Martin
0: and it sounds like she's doing good. Sounds like she's doing good. Well, nice to have those updates. And when it comes to the 2018 season, how do you defend a championship?
5: Well, first of all, you know, you've got to take it. You can't get lax days of cole, You have to realize just how high the mountain is that you're about to climb uh, even though you've you've climbed to the top of one, there's there's another one that's just a little bit bigger right on the horizon.
0: Why is it bigger?
5: Because we've set the bar, and the expectations are really high. Uh, I I just went through this conversation not an hour ago with our owner, and uh, <laughs> we won eight races last year, and and that's the
0: baseline now. So we're looking to win more. Uh, The NASCAR season is is really long, 36 events, I think, from February to November to decide the champion. Uh, We'll talk about some of the challenges you face in particular because of geography. But what's the biggest key going from week to week in NASCAR? It's really
5: organization. You have really got to be organized to be able to travel the distances that we travel. Our transporters leave Denver on generally a Tuesday uh, if the tracks are relatively close, meaning within 18 hours. okay. Uh, if they're further, the, uh, if they're closer, that we'll leave, you know, Wednesday. But you've got to be organized and prepared. We do, it does force us probably to be more prepared at more of the races than uh, the teams in North Carolina, just simply because of the location of all the tracks.
0: And help us understand what you're traveling with, what you have to get in line for each race. I mean, the car, obviously, but then all of the uh, bells and whistles along with it. Well, it's a small circus. It really is.
5: <laughs> the, uh, out of the shop in Denver will, will go a uh, the, the, uh, uh, tractor trailer, a transporter that has uh, the primary car and a backup car inside of it, and then the bottom of the trailer uh, where the crew members uh, can work and uh uh, spend time in is you could just envision a whole nother car could be built out of the parts and pieces that are inside of the trailer. My goodness. And as long as well as our engineering room, where uh, a group of engineers are, are in there all through the weekend, uh, collecting data from the car and from, um, obviously the driver and then working on what to do to the race car. And all of that has to be restocked every week. So when you come back from the track, there's a uh, a day day and a half period of unloading, all the, replacing all the consumables, reloading with a new equipment that is probably different than what you just ran at the racetrack you were at because the track you're going to is going to be a different size. Of course, the cars have to be prepared and ready.
0: And let's talk about the cars. They're, they're souped up Camrys. Do I have that right?
5: Yeah. That's exactly what they are for okay. the Toyota Camrys, and they are souped up. Yes,
0: this is not your suburban Camry. Tell us just a little bit more about the car before we talk about the driver. Sure. The cars are, uh, are relatively
5: common between all the manufacturers for, for a lot of the parts and pieces. Uh, the main spine of the car, the roll cage and, uh, and frame are, uh, for the most part, common all the way through. And then the sheet metal is uh, is very similar as far as from the shell, from the template. Of course, they look different to give the manufacturers our identifying marks. And tons of safety innovations uh, in the cars and come out of the cars uh, back into the manufacturers. We constantly look at doing R&D and working on different safety systems to protect the drivers. And, of course, beyond that, we spend an enormous amount of time on aerodynamics on the trying to get drag out of the cars for Daytona and Talladega and put downforce and side force in the cars for the tracks where you need more grip out of the tires, which would be
0: all the mile-and-a-halves and and smaller tracks. And this is really, in some ways, an arms race among the teams in NASCAR, trying to perfect all of this technology, trying to get the leg up, and I I suppose – Stay within the rules, uh, but I do want to ask about the driver, Martin Truex Jr. he joined Furniture Row in 2014. What do you think he brought that pushed you over the top last season in NASCAR? His desire
5: and his focus he has an uncanny focus to what he what what his goal is and I, we, at the first year we were together, we struggled just a little bit. There's There was a period of time that it takes for uh, relationships to develop between the crew chief and the driver and the engineers who are, who are all dealing together. That circus, as you described it. It, it is. And you've got to be able to uh, communicate well, or, or foundationally, you're already off to a bad start. And that's one of the strengths that you have with Martin is he does a really good job of communicating to the team on what he feels and what he wants out of the race car. And Does it, that
0: communication happen on the track? Is there real-time communication?
5: Absolutely. It, hap- it happens during every practice session while he's on the track. And then during the race while he's on the track, we, we can adjust the race car during the stops as we add fuel and put tires on. So it's critical that he's given us accurate information or else the adjustments we do to the car to make it better won't work. What's so, an adjustment you would make mid-race? It's crazy as it sounds, uh, Air pressure adjustment, as as little as three-tenths of air, three-tenths, will make the car go from handling good to handling poorly. Tire, it, in tires? It may be in the tires. It may be as much as uh, two-tenths of a second because wow. the tires just aren't happy with the pressure. So, again, that falls on our engineers to understand what the ideal pressures are for the car at a particular time and
0: temperature during the race, depending on what Martin tells them and that is a constant communication as you say both in practice and in competition you're listening to colorado matters i'm ryan warner and i'm speaking with joe garoni who's president of furniture row racing which won the 2017 nascar championship and will soon begin its 2018 defense next month at the daytona 500 so at the outset i mentioned the idea that you were you were snickered at as being a team well outside the Carolinas that seems to have dissipated. How do you think the the team is viewed now within NASCAR
5: well there's a lot of respect that we feel from the other teams uh, everybody in the sport it's a, it's a fishbowl we we're all swimming in the same bowl and it's, it's relatively small. I think for the most part, all of us know what it takes to race, so that group of guys in uh, that were our competitors. They know what we're up against out here in Colorado, and to be able to become the champions, uh, there's a high level of respect, and just love the fact that they show it. They don't hesitate to give us congratulatory uh, head nods and fist pumps, and
0: it's a uh, it's a great sport to be a part of. And yet, it's it's difficult, as you say, logistically to be based in Colorado. Uh, have you ever thought about relocating? No. No. Okay.
5: <laughs> Why?
0: I might have. Our
5: owner certainly hasn't, okay. but only because I am uh, analyzing everything all the time. And it was pretty early on. I, I was uh, right from the beginning when he said he wanted to run in Cup um, and he wanted to do it in Denver. We had just a short period of time where it was really about finding out if we could even do it logistically, getting the cars back and forth, getting to the track, being prepared. Yeah. A whole season. Maybe. But once we figure that out, it,
0: it, it's second nature now. So it's, it's not really a problem. I understand that your interest in racing stemmed from your father's love of this sport. I think he had a garage in Denver. He did. Yeah. Yes. What, what was it called? Uh, Garoni's Off-Highway Garage. Garoni's Off-Highway Garage. Do you remember spending a lot of time there as a kid?
5: I grew up there. I, I remember as far back as I can, which we identified... One day, my dad and I, that I remember something that when I was three years old, but I, I remember being in the garage uh, playing with old used carburetors and valve bodies out of automatic transmissions. And so those were my blocks growing up.
0: Those were, those were your Legos. Your, those were my Legos. Your Lincoln yeah. lugs. Your mom was a racer.
5: She was. I think from a driver perspective, she was better certainly than uh, my dad. And I wouldn't give her the chance to get in my car because I know she would have been better, and I just couldn't, I, my ego just couldn't handle it.
0: What kind of circuits were there at that time
5: for women? Well, she ran, uh, they ran on some road courses. There was a track here in Colorado called CDR, and I know she really liked the sports cars. This was before I was, came along. And and then uh, Lakeside Speedway, uh, right up here in North Denver, um, they they ran up there in a, one of the old stand-up modifieds, and they had a powder puff division, and a, a powder uh, puff for, where okay. she was racing with the other women.
0: <laughs> all right, and uh, not sure how that would fly. Is that does, does she, that name still exist? The pow- I yeah, that's pretty common in the oh, racing. Okay, yeah. How is the NASCAR community in Colorado? Like, what's your fan base here? It's growing.
5: There's a lot of racers here in Colorado from all kinds of different uh, styles of racing. It's this whole market out here is is flooded with just great racers, dirt racers, very famous short track racers. And they become NASCAR fans, uh, and they'll let you, they support us. You know, it's it's nice. I just left an event we had this weekend where they uh, the local guys, guys clear back to my early days in 1978 and 9th, through a little, uh, party for me. And it was, it was nice to see the support from all these guys.
0: Right. You were a racer for a number of years locally and in California as well, before moving to the business side of things. Uh, very briefly in about 20 seconds, uh, how do you scratch that itch now?
5: Um, well, recklessly, I drive too fast on the roads <laughs> and then I took my real passion out on the water. I have, uh, an offshore powerboat with some great big 1500 horsepower engines in it. And That's where I get my fix. The need for speed. The
0: need for speed. Joe, thanks so much. Break a leg in the next season. Absolutely. Thank you, man. Joe Garoni is president of Furniture Row Racing, which won the 2017 NASCAR Championship, and with driver Martin Tricks Jr., begins its 2018 defense at the Daytona 500. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.